Why don't we just pray before we uh, turn back to God's word together. Father God, we thank you for the offer of your grace that redeems us and restores us, Lord, from all of the sin and, and brokenness in our lives that we find that actually we can find restoration and healing and, and redemption in you. Lord, we thank you this morning that you welcome us once again uh, to experience that and to receive that for ourselves. Lord, we pray for your help now as we want to continue to worship you by listening to your word this morning. And so, Lord, we ask for your help that you might speak to us, Lord, uh, as you might speak through me and that you might, Lord, move within our hearts to mould us and to shape us into your image, Lord, and to do the work that you might want to do within us. Lord, we pray that you might give us ears to hear and, and hearts ready to respond, ready to hear what you might say to us. We pray that in some way, however we've sort of come in this morning, that we might leave more confident of all that you have done for us and more secure in our hope in you. So, Lord, I pray that you might do your work within us now. For your glory, we ask it. Amen. Sorry, I could get rid of that. I should say sort of three um, things at the at the beginning, really. So, so this morning we're, we're thinking about uh, the gospel and gender. Uh, and this is part of something we've been starting to do once a month, is to think about uh, particular issues that, are, are, of, of course, are very prominent um, within our culture and that need speaking into, and that the gospel speaks a very distinctive message into. So, But there's three things I should sort of say at the beginning, really. The, the passage is headed as being about divorce, and that's some of the conversation, of course, isn't it, in that passage. And uh, but that's not really my focus this morning, actually. My focus really is Jesus' words about gender. Because actually this might be the sort of clearest statement of Jesus' views upon gender. Although this sort of question that's initially raised is, is about divorce, isn't it? I think the second thing to say is, um, it's a bit awkward, isn't it? <laughs> is it not? <laughs> Sometimes Jesus says some really awkward stuff, doesn't he? That's actually quite uncomfortable sort of to read and so I guess my hope would be because you know for, for many of us actually this this might be an issue that's very real for you isn't it you, you know you might have experienced the pain of divorce or those close to you might have and you might know some of the sort of pain and the, the struggle of that and that there can be lots and lots of different reasons for that so I guess my greatest hope would be that you wouldn't go out today feeling sort of condemned uh because that, that's, that's not at all my, my sort of hope and, and, and I don't think my, my message that you'll hear. So maybe it, it bears out saying that. But lastly, we need to talk about these things, don't we, actually? We're a bit naive to pretend as if actually relationships are, are, are somehow by default that much easier for, for following Jesus. I, I'm not sure they are. Actually, it bears being spoken about. But it's not this thing that's so shameful you, 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 you can't actually mention. But like I say, the focus really actually is on uh, gender here. We live in a culture that is struggling to understand gender. And it's uh, really struggling to find a way in which actually both men and women can flourish and thrive in the world. 
And so here, I think Jesus speaks into this issue of gender in maybe the clearest way that he actually ever does in his own words. And so I wanted to do that. And one of the reasons I wanted to do that is that sometimes there is a false sort of dichotomy, a false sort of division between what Jesus says and the Old Testament. What Jesus says and Paul will say. And actually, I think some of Jesus' words here suggest that, no, there isn't at all. So maybe it's important to actually go to the words of Jesus to see some of this. Of course, some of this is a bit tough, isn't it? So I don't want you to at all feel judged or to feel bad or to feel guilty, but it's good for us to be honest sometimes, isn't it, and to talk about these difficult issues. So turn with me there to that passage, Owen, to verse 3 to 6. Because what we see here in this sort of uh, conversation, this encounter, this moment that's recorded here, is a test is put before Jesus. Now, when I explain this to you, there's the risk that you're going to think uh, certain things of me as a person. I'll perhaps go down in your estimation. Um, I'm not a Star Trek fan, okay? And that's the caveat to this sort of story. But I was once taken to a Star Trek movie. Uh, it feels like this probably is the appropriate setting to sort of confess such things, uh, really. I went to a movie and, and I became aware of something sort of quite interesting in the story. So Captain Kirk, who's sort of the big sort of heroic fella, and then, you know, you have Dr. Spock, who's the sort of one who maybe in some ways you think should be the sort of main captain, sort of, but isn't super intelligent sort of brain. Uh, they undergo a test in order to test whether they can be captains called the Kobayashi Maru. And what you find at the end of it is that the Kobayashi Maru is an unwinnable test. Nobody can win. In fact, you're, you're going into a situation in which there is certain death that you cannot avoid simply to see how you handle a moment that you can't turn around, you can't change, but how will you respond in that moment? This is something of what is set before Jesus here. He set a test that in one sense, he'll not be able to win. And in some ways, the conversation on gender is like this in the culture, isn't it? It is an unwinnable conversation. There are some people you will simply not win over. It doesn't matter what you say. It's something of a trap. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking. In fact, the, the weather is tempted him. They're drawing him in. And here's a hint that they're setting something of a trap for him. What's the trap? Well, continue into verse 3 here. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And I suggest to you that every single word of that sentence is really significant. There's no lost words in that sentence. The devil is in the detail. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? There's an insight here into the nature of the debate that they're having. The presenting issue is divorce, but I'd suggest that the foundational issue is actually gender, the nature and the purpose of what it is to be a woman, to be a man. See, divorce here is seen in Judaism, in Hebrew thought, in the Old Testament, as something that, uh, to, you know, to put it mildly, would be suboptimal, that would be maybe not the best, but it was not impermissible, and it happened at times. And divorce was allowed if a certificate was obtained, and you see that in some of that conversation. The dispute, however, was on what was a sort of valid reason to do that. There's a 
all-important phrase that's used that you might be able to divorce your wife, and we'll come back to this in a moment, but notice the way in which that's worded. A man might be able to divorce his wife. It's completely one-sided, and in that sense, there's something very grossly unfair about that, of course. The dispute is what qualifies as something indecent? That was the sort of magic phrase, that if you could say you'd sort of found something indecent, something disagreeable in your partner, then that would be enough. And so there was two schools of thoughts in Jesus' day from two particular sort of prominent rabbis, from Shammai and Hillel. Shammai was sort of relatively social, sort of conservative, and would say, well, no, the the only thing is, is if someone is unfaithful. However, there's another uh, prominent rabbi at the time as well who would say, actually, you know, it could be anything, really, and represents something of the sort of social progressive sort of side of the conversation. Uh, You might, I hope that you do, recognize something of the way in which our culture today still is kind of divided on those kind of lines, those kind of tectonic plates of the social progressive, the social conservative. And so they're tempting Jesus They're tempting Jesus to take a stand and risk immediately ostracizing a whole host of people. Whatever it is, he says. There's the test. It's a cosmopolitan sort of a question, really, from a cosmopolitan crowd. Jesus has left the region of Galilee, where he's sort of grown up, a region that seems more traditional, uh, less cosmopolitan, less sort of uh, smaller, for one thing. And now he's entering the region of Judea, the southern part, the part where Jerusalem is contained. He's making his way gradually towards the end of his life and ministry, which is his uh, death and resurrection. And he has his eyes set on Jerusalem. And here now we're in front of the more cosmopolitan crowds. And we can make three observations, just that verse 3 there, again quickly here. Give those phrases. Firstly, is it lawful? And firstly, we can note that there's a huge difference between what is lawful and what is right, between what is permissible and what is beneficial. Secondly, notice that phrase, and I sort of alluded to it already, is it lawful for you to divorce one's wife? It is totally imbalanced. Can you see that? The expectation is weighted entirely here in a man's favor. The man has all the rights to divorce and do away with his wife as he pleases, and women are nothing more here than an object. See in the way they've put that? That's significant, isn't it? And then look at that phrase just at the end, for any cause. The problem is not so much can you divorce someone, can you divorce someone for any cause in this sort of completely flippant way? This is completely unfair. There's the test that they set him. Does he risk now losing popular appeal by offending socially progressive people? Jesus is actually remarkably popular amongst the general public. But now does he dare risk losing that by now offending these people? Or, on the other hand, does Jesus risk now looking theologically unorthodox? tricky, isn't it? And some would say the church should stay out of such questions today. So how do we respond to some of this? Well, you know, the one thing to say, I think, would be that culture is not looking for us. Culture is not needing for us. Christ is not asking us to play world police. 
for the world. It's not asking for us really to govern their behavior. So church and state are completely separate. Okay, in Scotland, nominally, there's some sort of hint of a national church, but let's be real. Does it have any impact upon actual societal governance? No, nor does it in England either. And the debate very much is whether there should even continue to be a presence of bishops in the House of Lords and other places. We're separated. It's not our place to be world police. And yet, if one claims the tag of disciple of Christ, it suddenly becomes a relevant question for us to speak about in the context of, is, is this consistent with following Jesus? That's our problem, isn't it? And that's why it is something we have to talk about. Have you not read? Jesus responds. They ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Have you not read? And look at how Jesus responds to this question, this issue. He turns to scripture, not experience, not culture. Scripture redefines and reshapes everything, even for Jesus himself. That that's the place he turns and that's the place that he directs the Pharisees back to. It's somewhat ironic that Jesus would have to do that with people who perceive themselves to be very much schooled in the scriptures but Jesus responses have you not read and look at where Jesus goes to you might possibly recognize some of those words that he's using here that they come from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother hold fast to his wife they should become one flesh. Have you not read? Jesus draws his theology from the Old Testament. And there's the problem in wanting to perhaps see a difference between what the Old Testament says and what Jesus may say. Because the first place that he goes is the very first book. And he quotes it as authoritative. He assumes that it would be accepted that that would be right. He who created, look at that beginning, that our views, Jesus' views here are predicated on the reality that we are created by God. That's a really, really significant difference in the conversation, isn't it? That it really turns the tables over on the conversation as to whether or not you agree that humanity is actually made by a creator. That changes things. Creator has a right to define his creation in a way that he doesn't if he's not creator. That's significant. It means that, that God defines our identity. That it's, it's not actually up to me to identify myself. That's significant because we've said num numerous times on other subjects too and, and everything winds up relating back to one another. The one of the main differences between the message and the pattern of the gospel and, and the message sort of overall of the world around us is the nature of this disagreement of, am I completely autonomous? Am I basically in charge for me and that all of life really is about me finding what's good for me because I really am all that truly exists and all that matters and it is really only to me to define who I am and to decide what I will do 
Here's the interesting thing. This comes back from hundreds and hundreds of years of, of thought. This comes back whether you know it or sense it or not. You feel it and experience it and live it every day. Is that This comes from the Enlightenment. This comes from the thinkers like Descartes who would say, I think, therefore I am. Or actually, I doubt, therefore I think, therefore I am. I can only truly know that I really do exist, and I'm not just a projection, by my ability to critically reason and think. And the only thing that really matters and that really, truly, actually exists when you scrape away everything else is what I can understand of myself and the world. I think, therefore I am. And the, the idea and the hope was that you could actually reason would be the thing by which we might all agree. That we might find common ground in the things that we can all actually agree and prove. And yet, we find ourselves in an odd place in which that has been changed and adapted somewhat. Because today it is, I think I am, therefore I am. It's all about identity. And whoever that I think I am, that is who I am. You have no right to challenge that because... What matters most is how I see myself, is my existence. I am autonomous. I am my own person. I am the master and the captain of my fate. No one else can tell me otherwise. This is the nature of the disagreement. This is the nature of the disagreement. It's about whether humans are fully autonomous, self-determining, and self-defining. Or are we creatures, dependent on another. Jesus begins by saying, he who created. His position could not be clearer. He who created from the beginning made them male and female. So that there's a gender distinction hardwired into creation. And there's a few things we can say just about that section in Genesis 1 to 2. That firstly, that, that God has made both male and female. They're equal in value. They're both reflecting God's image in their distinct ways. But they are distinct. They are. Humanity did not have to be gendered, did it? We could have been the sort of androgynous beings that some would seem to like to reduce us to. We could have just been made that way. And yet God has chosen not to do that. Because he's determined that to be good. He's determined that to be better. And note this. God's creation is described as being good after every day. It is only ever described as very good after he's made both male and female. There is something about the nature of that that to God is pleasing, that we equally reflect his image, but distinctly. From the beginning, he made them male and female. Jesus is answering the initial question here on divorce, but actually he's speaking entirely really here about the nature of gender. So having set out these beliefs on gender, now Jesus turns back a little bit to a practical outworking of it. And I think that's the relevance to Jesus here of, uh, of going to gender when being asked a question about divorces. Actually, here's a test case of how you see some of these ideas play out, for better or for worse. 
He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, he's quoting Genesis directly, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What's that link between verses 4 and 5? That he who created from the beginning made a male and female, and then, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What's that link? Well, God has created both men and women as distinct genders, distinct expressions of humanity, to be brought together. Gender is not merely a social construct. It is not simply a matter of organs. It cannot be reduced to being that. I mean, listen to that idea for a second. Let's put it in just one sort of direction. But is it really right to reduce the experience, the reality of being a woman to certain body parts? Is that really all that it is, that is distinct? Is there really nothing more distinct to the beauty and the reality of living as a woman than that? What a terribly dehumanizing thing to say. Are we really to accept that the distinctive things that come with being a woman and not a man are merely a construct? They're merely imagined. It's just an illusion to you. That really, after all, you've, you've just imagined that you're different. What a demeaning view. It's not a social construct. From the beginning, he made them male and female. We've been made, though, for each other. To be made one together. And there's something here with that idea of synergy, that there's a greater value to the end product than even the sum of the parts themselves. That something greater happens then again, when actually both men and women are united together in this way. They're no longer two, but one flesh. They're a new creation, a new identity together, and exist to some extent in each other. And so, this is why Jesus lands up, verse 16, saying, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is serious, to be joined together, to be separated from one another. I, I think the point is, as well, because the danger is that you might, you, you might hear there that um, it's saying, you know, you, you can't ever wind up uh, splitting apart. I, I, I don't think that, that that is what Jesus is intending. I think the point, though, is to say that actually it's no, it's not that you can't ever, but that it's serious. The ways in which humanity tries to find more and more ways to dislocate from one another is unhealthy and harmful. Whereas God has brought humanity together into distinct expressions, equally valuable but distinct, experiencing things differently. So firstly, there's this test. But secondly, we see something of a failure. One of the ways in which we see, and there's many of them, but one of them here in this specific conversation, the ways in which we fail to handle gender is the way that even our deepest relationships can actually fracture at times. And the response here recognizes that there's, there is a reality that you know, divorce happens, doesn't it? It does. There are times where that does just happen. And that the way that we treat each other is not always right, is it? So they come back at him here and ask him, verse 7, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And again, look how completely dehumanizing the language is to just send her away. 
no way we can get away from that, of how uh, harsh and cold that is sounding. But here's the reality, is that sort of abusive treatment comes from a wrong view of humanity. Notice here, the Pharisees are interested in, what can I get away with? Where's the line? How close can I get to it before I find myself in trouble? You know, religion does this, doesn't it? Religion says, what do I have to do? What are my obligations? It asks, where's the line? Where are the restrictions? And what can I get away with? What's my license? It's entirely self-absorbed, self-seeking, self-satisfying, and it cares nothing for the other. And yet, on the other hand, faith would approach this asking, who are we? What's our identity? And how are we to live in light of who God has made us to be? What is our purpose? Entirely different questions. And then, am I behaving consistently or inconsistently with our common identity and purpose? And Jesus corrects them here, verse 8. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. And notice the word corrections. Again, the, the devil is in the detail of the specific words used here. They've said, why is Moses commanded? And Jesus corrects them and says, no, he's allowed you because of your hardness of heart. Moses hasn't commanded them. That wasn't ever good wasn't ever a pleasing thing, but it was a thing that was sometimes necessary and permitted because it was sort of needed. And in some senses, there needs to be some sort of policy of ability to escape for safeguarding. That sometimes th that is just the right thing that needs to happen in a, in a messy situation. There's circumstances in which that's right. Situations of violence, of abuse... Or perhaps of a, uh, a breaking of the vows that just can't quite be reconciled. There are, there are moments at which, unfortunately, sadly, that's maybe the right response is, is to go different ways. But from the beginning, Jesus tells us, it wasn't so. That was not the design. That was not the intent for marriage to be ended so, so easily. And so notice that contrast here between from the beginning God created in verse 4, to now, the beginning, it wasn't so. God has actually created humanity, men and women, to be living in community together, to be living together. We wind up finding ways, conspiring to be disunited one way or another, don't we? See, the need for permission for divorce is a recognition of our sad inability always to love one another well. We know that, that it's, that it's hard to do that, isn't it? I'll leave verse 9 for another day, because I think that's a sermon in and of itself. And like I say, actually, it's not divorce primarily I'm interested in. It's the nature of, of gender. Uh, but, I, but I will say at least that on the one hand, and I think this might be more Jesus' point, but like I say, it's really a whole sermon for another day. But in, in Jesus saying here about the, the nature of sort of divorcing and then reconnecting with somebody else, it is one thing to cut somebody out. It is another to be able to erase where your souls have been knitted together. 
This happens even with friends too. It's one thing to cut a friend out, isn't it? But you can't completely erase memories with them. And I think something of that is the nature of Jesus' point here. That on the one hand, you can cut off the relationship, but it might perhaps be underestimating the seriousness of human connection to think that you'll really just forget them. It doesn't quite work as neatly as that. There's a failure there. And then look at verse 10 here. And I don't know whether you'll have noticed this, but there's a weird response, isn't there? And it comes from the disciples. And in some ways you might think, well, sort of expected the poor response from the Pharisees. They're generally sort of seen as the bad guys. Never come off too well, do they? But maybe I sort of thought that the disciples might have got things uh, a bit better. And yet what we realize is they're still learning, just like us. And they've still got a lot to learn. In fact, the disciples respond here to Jesus. If such is the case of a man with his wife... Notice again, still solely from a male perspective. And again, that's sort of a problem, isn't it? But again, it's only really thinking of it from the man and his rights and his sort of privileges, which again is is wrong and Jesus will correct this. But if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And listen to that. Listen to how sad that is. If you can't push eject, you can't just sort of chuck her out when she doesn't please you, then maybe it's best not to marry in the first place. What a bizarre, challenging, awkward, uncomfortable, inappropriate thought to express. And I guess there might be a couple of reasons why they put this across, and it's hard to know which is what they're expressing. I suppose, firstly, it might be that they sense that the lack of freedom to abandon a person if things don't go your way is unpalatable. And in many ways, that's a lot of modern life. That unless there's this sort of uh, back door for me to be able to slip away whenever things just are getting a bit challenging for me, then maybe I don't want to get into it in the first place. On the other hand, it could be that the sort of fear of failure and the reality that we know that no marriage, no relationship together is perfect sort of puts you off marriage entirely. One commentator puts it like this. This is the voice of the perfectionist and the ascetic who believes the best is unlikely to be attained so it would be better to avoid the second best. Either way, very strange, unhealthy thing they're expressing. If this is the case, then it's better not to marry. You know, marriage isn't for everyone, of course, uh, and not everyone marries, and that's fine you're no less valuable for that of course and I think it's probably important that we sort of air that as well and that that's recognized that you know you're no less valuable or you're not somehow you know having failed or not achieved something you should have in life if you're single God gives us different callings doesn't he and we wouldn't want you to feel in any way shape or form sort of left out for the fact that a lot of this is talking about marriage but again that's that's another fuller sermon for another day same full but you know paul says elsewhere that you know singleness is a calling is a gift that enables you actually to focus on christ and be more flexible in a way that actually sometimes people with other responsibilities it's, it's not so easy to do that you're torn and conflicted and actually singleness though it may not always feel like it is much more preferable to jumping into a relationship with the wrong person there's a brilliant proverb that says that better on the corner of a rooftop than with a quarrelsome spouse it is better to be single than to be with someone where it just 
doesn't work from the beginning. It is easier, for sure. And yet, what do we say here about marriage, then? Well, some marriages do end abruptly, don't they? Some need to. Like I said, there are some circumstances in which it's hard to see what else you can really do for sometimes even the safety of people. And sometimes it's hard to know what might have saved a marriage that does experience that. You know, we're humans and navigating marriage isn't just a problem for people out there, but for us too, just as much. And we need to be honest about that, I think. And the need for grace, need to shape our marriages, our homes. Every marriage is always two imperfect people being brought together, different sins, different stories, different struggles. And so actually there's that need for that sort of culture of honesty and vulnerability and humility, mutual encouragement and learning, where we actually help one another. Because marriage is central to God's plan and purposes for humanity. And we see it in two ways here and again, even in that Genesis account, that it's central for the population and ruling of creation. But secondly, it's central to showing the way that the distinct genders, both male and female, are complementary in nature. They're equal but different. They're made for each other. They're better together than apart. Because it's hard, and because no one gets it right all the time, is no reason to give in on it. It's not true that it's, well, better not to marry then if it can get difficult. We don't give up on marriage Instead, we press into Christ's grace to equip us, to shape us, to change us. That's what we see when Paul speaks of this in Ephesians. Oops, sorry, I'm dropping stuff everywhere here. Let me read just some of that for you, and it will be familiar, but it bears being said again because it's a distinct pattern and message to life in the world in which we live. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Hold on for a couple of verses' time. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And now on the other side, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Do you see that pattern and that model of mutual submission and sacrifice that actually both are considering the other as more important than the other and loving the other as themselves. The gospel provides a very distinct view of gender in this way and especially what that looks like in everyday life. That Here's what it looks like. It looks like a wife submitting to a husband even though he's not perfect, even though he'll uh, get many things wrong and even though there'll be days in which that's really hard. And yet on the other hand, that the man's role is to sacrifice himself as 
Jesus sacrifices for us. That's utterly, utterly distinct. Where else do you hear that level of sacrifice and submission and care? So the disciples' response is weird and wrong. And then lastly, we end with these tricky exceptions. Jesus says, not everyone can receive this saying. In, in some senses, it's not relevant to everybody. Not everybody is married, in which case it's uh, less so for you. But there are, there are also tricky exceptions too, where we might not be able to apply these sort of neat categories so easily. Not everyone can receive this saying, he says, but only to those to whom it's given. And there's a recognition here, as I've tried to say, and I hope you've certainly heard, uh, is that you know, the instructions on marriage you know, aren't so applicable to everybody. But also, it's, it's worth hearing because many of us are married. Some of us will be. Some of you will consider that at, at various points. And it actually does affect us all, doesn't it? As we walk alongside friends and loved ones and family. And Jesus gives us three tricky exceptions here from verse 12. You'll see that particular word there, eunuch. Which actually basically means... It's a bit of a junk drawer word. Uh, do you know what I mean? They're like um, a junk drawer that you pull out and just everything is in. A junk drawer word is one word that can actually mean a lot of sort of different things. Uh, and unit works in that way. It means basically alone in bed. Um, but it could be used in a, a real variety of sort of circumstances. And Jesus gives us three particular ones here where there's a recognition that perhaps the sort of... Um, the teaching that he has given here from Genesis 1 to 2, yeah, it, it's maybe not so neat to try to translate it over. We get three of those here. Firstly, we see verse 12 here, eunuchs who have been so from birth. And the, the point that Jesus is making is, is about here, and this is one of the ways the words can be described, is, um, how best to put it, um, uh, people where perhaps it, it is not clear um, what gender they are. And we know that there are medically, there, there are circumstances which are really challenging where, where that can happen in a variety of ways where it, 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 you know, it isn't so easy perhaps uh, uh, to distinguish that, that there are some from birth, that actually that's, that's a challenge. And so how do we respond to that? It's quite important to think about that, isn't it? You know, maybe there are some certain gender stereotypes that are unnecessary and unhelpful and need dropping. They wind up producing a sort of caricature that reduces us from the sort of complex uh, personalities that God has made us to be to something of a cliche, don't they? And these will be hurtful, particularly, won't they, for people where maybe physically there's a thing that gender is, is you know, uh, yeah, like I said, I'm trying to flounder to find the right ways of saying it most sensitively, where, where, it's, where it's just not so clear, isn't it, for people? And equally, for those who may just as painfully experience a sort of mental and emotional sort of anguish about their gender, where they feel uncomfortable in the gender that they're in. And that's really challenging, isn't it? And maybe it's worth just being sensitive to that. Uh, secondly, there's probably just even the thing of vocalizing that this exists. This exists. But, you know, for some people, this is really challenging and difficult, isn't it? It's a really tough journey. And they exist. They are a category. And then thirdly, it's important to be gracious, isn't it? To be loving, to be welcoming. Jesus here acknowledges them as a group. 
where neat categories don't quite work in the same way, and where we may, for good reasons, uh, be cautious, for sure, uh, uh, about sort of surgical uh, procedures, and we might maybe prefer to discourage that. There are some where that's already the situation anyway, isn't it? And they're already somewhere on that spectrum, and there needs to be something of that grace and sensitivity, doesn't there? And Jesus here, notice, isn't actually calling for them to change, but is recognizing that the categories aren't very easy for them going forwards. And maybe for us too, that's about the uh, clearest thing we can say of knowing how do we walk with friends who are experiencing that. But there's a second category because there's some who've experienced this from birth and there's been that challenge sort of all their life and that need to give grace and empathy to them. But secondly, there's another challenging uh, group as well, those who are made eunuchs by men. And here we might say that this is, uh, almost people have been here and often in, in the world of the time, this was something that was forced upon you rather than chosen as well. But that actually, um, especially for sort of prisoners of war and things, you know, that y you would have uh, y your genitalia removed and, and basically forced to being transgender. And that's what they're experiencing. They've been made eunuchs by men. They've had some sort of procedure, whether willing or not, post-birth. And again, like I say, we might personally feel that perhaps we might want to discourage rushing into things like that. But it's probably important, well, no, it is important not to discriminate, isn't it? And to realize that that might be a very distinct journey of faith, actually. That, that, might, that might be very particular kind of a journey and with different kind of challenges to some of what we may have experienced. And then there's a third group, isn't there? That some who've become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. And the way we might put it is that there's some who are, uh, are abstaining from sexual activity. That seeing God as sovereign, the kingdom as superior, they sacrifice sexual activity in order to gain the kingdom. Again, I think that's probably a challenging thing to articulate in the world of today. These faithful believers here decided God is sovereign, not me. His kingdom is superior, not sexuality. And so they sacrifice that for the sake of the kingdom. The world encourages the opposite. And we go back to that discussion. Am I completely free and autonomous to decide my own way? It says I'm sovereign, not God. My sexuality is superior to the kingdom. I'll sacrifice the kingdom for that. And it doesn't matter how you express that sexuality. But it is not your defining identity. It can't be. Who you are can't be reduced to that. And yet look how honorable and faithful and tough that sort of path is for them. They abstain from that in order to gain the kingdom of God. There are some here who don't quite fit the stereotypes, don't quite fit the neat molds. And there's a need for grace in those situations, isn't there? And yet... They don't disprove God's promises and his purposes for us. So as we come to the end, is it really then, this question 
a Kobayashi Maru? Can we not actually find a way to flourish together? Can we not find a way in which perhaps gender doesn't become such a troublesome and divisive subject? Look back to Genesis 3 with me here. For all of that there and the fall that comes after it. God says, I'll put enmity between you, that's the serpent who had deceived Adam and Eve and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here is the very first promise of Christ. That the hope for us is in the Son to come. The Son who has come for us to save us, to set us free, to make a way that we might actually finally be all that we were made to be through him. And I'll finish by reading these words from Galatians 3 that show how Jesus has done that for us. It says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We find out what it means to be truly human, to live together by coming to Christ and by finding one to another that actually our identity is in him. Not in my background, not in my gender, not in my sexuality, but in Christ alone. But in him defining me and his love for me and who God has made me to be. I find myself free to be all he had always made me to be. If I can lay down all the other things that I'm tempted to reduce myself to. And find myself in him, in his love, in his grace. We can find hope to flourish together as his people. Recognize lots of those things are pretty hard. And here's the thing with some of these um, subjects we've been speaking about. We can only barely scratch the surface. <laughs> so, I mean, there's so many elements that you can't really get to talk about in even the... Um, more time that I take up than I should um, on a Sunday. Um, so, you know, if you wanted to just chat about it and things in the week, I'd always be open to doing that with you and to try to uh, walk through some of those things together. It's not, it's not easy to know what to say, is it? But there is hope in Christ to find life, to find freedom, to find who we truly are in him. And so I'm going to welcome you to actually tangibly, physically, sort of enter into that experience now by joining me in a few moments at, in communion. And I welcome you then, if you're believing and trusting in the death of Jesus Christ, to atone you for sins and to bring you to newness of life through his spirit, to join with me in a few moments in, in sharing this meal together. So hopefully when you came in, you got your little sort of um, uh, travel co communion thing. And uh, we will do that in a few moments but why don't I pray for us and then we will come to share that together
Father God, we thank you for your love and your grace towards us. We thank you that we are your creation. Sometimes we struggle in our own skin, in who we are, and we struggle to be content, struggle to be happy with, with who we are, and um, find it hard to maybe even to come to terms with that uh, at times. But Lord, I thank you that the truth is that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made by you. Lord, forgive us for the times in which we knowingly and most of them unknowingly uh, wind up trying to define ourselves, trying to limit ourselves and reduce ourselves from what you've made us to be to, to something lesser. And forgive us for the ways in which at times we might be prone to perhaps even uh, do that to others too. Father, we thank you that in love you have given your son for us to redeem us, to renew us, to recreate us. Well, we thank you that through the work of your spirit you are slowly, slower than we would hope. You are remaking us in your image and restoring us to all that you always made us to be. Well, we bring before you now those moments, even in the last week or so, where, you know, we're aware of, of ways in which we've, uh, you know, fallen short of all you made us to be, that we've um, accepted a life less than what you would call us to. Forgive us, Lord, we pray. As we come to your table, pray, Lord, that we would know in our spirits and our hearts that forgiveness and freedom from sin and newness of life that you offer us. Amen.